0: Celebrate the launch of David Rothkoff's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit the dsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29 but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very
1: much. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from New York City. And we are joined today by a great group, including in Alexandria, Virginia, wearing a fresh I Voted sticker, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And uh, also in the D.C. metro area, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed?
2: Great. Thank you, David.
1: And in that same general vicinity, our friend from the Words Matter podcast, Norm Orenstein of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Norm? I'm uh, nervous, Dave. Nervous. Well, very. I have a lot of spilkis in the Gonektikazoid today. Wow. Spilkis in the Gonektikazoid. We'll explain what that is on the website. This is election day when we're recording it. You may not be listening to it on election day. But I bet if you're listening to it even a couple of days after, there's plenty of things that you won't no. know yet. Anyway, and David Sanger, who's someplace, but there are no books behind him. Usually I use the books to tell me where David Sanger is. Where are you uh, going? I am in a
0: bookless office in Washington, D.C., without my I have voted sticker of the kind that Rosa has. But of course, in D.C., we get to vote. It just doesn't
1: always count. Well, that's true. That is true. I can't imagine that office of yours without books in it, actually. But
0: yeah, it's just a little writing hideaway,
1: David. Oh, I see. Okay. So it is election day. It's very dangerous to do a podcast like this on election day because you don't really know what's going to happen. Or do we, Norm?
3: And the answer to that, David, is no, we don't. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One reason is. It's really hard to trust polls anymore. Now it's always been difficult, but it's gotten more and more difficult. When I uh, talked several years ago at the American Association of Public Opinion Research, APOR, I said we're hitting a crisis point because response rates were down to around 9 or 10%. We yearn for the days when we could have 9 or 10% response rates now. They're more like a trace element. And a lot of these surveys still don't use cell phones because it's expensive. So you're getting a tiny share of people and then you have to use a kind of magic like throwing away the cookbook and using whatever you think is the right amount. A little pinch here, a little pinch there. These polls are using
1: landlines?
3: A lot of them are using landlines and others are using the internet, which is also iffy. Uh, The better polls use a combination. They do uh, cell phones, but you have to, it costs more money. And of course, many of these surveys are fly by night. They'll do it overnight. And that means you miss a lot of people who aren't there, but it's more an art than it is a science right now. Then throw in another reality, which is we get a lot of manipulative polls now, particularly from the right. Trafalgar and a group of others that flood the zone in the month before the election and that are used by these aggregators, 538.com, realclearpolitics.com, that make it look as if we've got a wave going. But we have no real idea if we have a wave at this point, David. We also know that we've seen a surge in early voting this time, which in theory ought to be good for Democrats, but it's not a, a firm indicator of where we are, or where we're going. What we do know is this. It's going to be a decent night for Republicans, how decent it remains to be seen. And Democrats, I think, still have a reasonably good chance of holding on to the Senate and only teeny tiny chance of the uh, House. And we have to keep our eye on more than 30 races for secretaries of state, the top election officials, for attorneys general, and for governorships. And I can tell you that if Republicans win governorships in places like Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, 2024 becomes a real bigger problem for us than it would be otherwise, because we will have election deniers working together with corrupt state legislatures. So have a nice day.
1: Well, thank thank you. And of course, some people are listening to this after they've heard some returns, uh, but uh, I think one thing that we can say on on here as we're recording it that is also likely to be true then is what you just intimated and that is republicans are likely to retake the house of representatives if they retake the house of representatives rosa you know they've already said they're going to start subpoenaing people they're going to start doing hearings investigating hunter biden impeaching the president they're going to advance all sorts of Interesting economic programs. They may want to stop funding Ukraine, and and I'm just wondering, you know, at, at what point does the world look at the United States and say this country is too schizophrenic to lead?
4: I think that's already happened to a significant extent. Uh, you know, I think our shenanigans over the last few years, the Trump administration in particular, obviously, um, have already greatly damaged U.S. credibility. Globally, you know, I think that we are perceived already as at best an unreliable ally because no one knows if every four years everything will change. The old foreign policy partisan divide stops at the, war, at the water's edge uh, is no longer true. You know, that the the sense of continuity in terms of from administration to administration, I think, is is just not there anymore. And so our allies and our adversaries alike correctly think that there may be wild oscillations. And then on top of that, add in not just wild oscillations between different but reasonably plausible policy visions, but wild oscillations between plausible policy vision and just bonkersness, which is what we had during the Trump administration, you know, throws in that additional wild card. So, you know, I I don't I don't think it's such a terrible thing for the rest of the world to say gee we can't assume that the united states is going to come in and solve problems or ride to the rescue i think it's not such a bad thing for other states to feel like let's imagine there is no united states or a, or a us that's so dysfunctional that it's completely irrelevant what do we do then i think that i think that even just as a thought experiment that's actually a, a really good and useful one but i would rather not you know be living here while we become irrelevant cuz it's not going to be so great for us
1: what do you think of that thesis, Ed, that this is a useful thought experiment for the world, for the United States, via its own democratic means to render itself less relevant?
2: Well, it's, it's a useful exercise in the sort of darkest sense of the word useful, but it's also a realistic or well, not an unrealistic one for countries to put themselves through, and they have been putting themselves through this really since 2016, since Trump first won. I think there is an understanding and a deep foreboding that Trump could come back and that if he does come back, it would be a lot worse than it was last time. Uh, you know, Norm had a book, it's even worse than it looks. Well, this would be considerably worse than it was. And so they're hedging, they're taking out insurance policies against America and going back that way. But I don't think um, I don't think Europe is united enough to take out a singular European insurance policy. There are different parts of Europe. The, the eastern states, the former Soviet-occupied countries, the Baltics, Poland, etc., have a very different view of the war in Ukraine, for example, than the Mediterranean countries and you know are far more implacable in terms of not wanting to pursue diplomacy. The French, the Spanish, the Italians are far more pro-diplomacy, the Germans, the Dutch are somewhere in the middle, the Britons are sort of honorary Poles in this respect. In what sense could that very disparate European range of views on the Ukraine situation survive an America that just decided to walk off under Trump term two? I don't know. I, I you know, I'm not sure I hate to say, you know, America is indispensable, but I fear that it is. Um. And then, of course, in Asia Pacific, the same point I made on Europe, but times three, the quad is nothing like NATO and never will be. Japan is very much tied to America's aprons strings. And Australia is a a strong-willed and clear-eyed nation in that region, but, you know, it, it can't on its own provide the kind of Pushback to China that that it that it's doing so now with the United States. So I, yeah, insurance premiums will be taken out, but they will be sky high because this is a very expensive specter we're looking at.
1: Well, for some it is, uh, David. You know the Saudis have already sort of placed a, a preliminary bet. You know they said we're going to go with the Republicans, whether they believe Biden will become weaker or not, is 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 unknown, but they've just sort of said, we're going betting the Republicans. Other countries seem to have done that. Putin, you know, clearly has a stake in Republicans if they reduce funding for Ukraine. And Netanyahu long ago said, I'm going with the Republicans. I'm not really going with the Democrats. Do you think there is a, a, a likelihood that more countries will Play American politics to try to do so to their advantage over the course of the next couple of years, with the US almost inevitably having a split government?
0: I do, David, but I think we're in a funny kind of paradox
1: here, which is that when the
0: election is over and we know the results in the next two days, Joe Biden will essentially be a foreign policy president, right? Because his domestic agenda will be fundamentally over. Assuming he loses the House, he still has veto capability, but he's not going to get any new domestic programs through. So that's going to bring the man who used to be the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee back to focusing entirely on foreign policy. And while I agree that there's a lot of hedging going on in the world, the fact of the matter is, most of the American allies and those who would be tempted to lean toward Washington don't have much of a place to go right now. You know, uh, They have seen the dangers of being over dependent on China. They know that Russia is consumed by this war. They may, some of them, like the UAE, maybe like the Saudis, maybe like Netanyahu, and his government in Israel may prefer Republicans, but they know they're not getting that for the next two years. So you're going to have Biden being a foreign policy president at the very moment, if you believe Rose's analysis is right, that the United States may be in a significantly weakened position to influence events. And that's going to be the real tug of war, because Biden will be focusing more than ever on using a diminishing amount
1: of American influence. Yeah, and one of the reasons, Norman's going to be diminishing is that even if the Republicans just take the House, they're not going to fund Biden foreign policy initiatives the way they've been funded before. So Biden was leading the way on Ukraine with support of the Congress. That's not going to be possible going forward. He's not going to be able to write checks as he was. And in fact, they will probably almost reflexively oppose anything that he supports. Or am I wrong?
3: It's even worse than that, I would say. One thing we have to keep in mind is that we have a lot of Republicans who will come into the House and remember that a significant majority of the majority, if they are there, uh, are election deniers, which means that they're very radical uh, people. They're ready to push us to a default. Uh, This lame duck period from Wednesday through uh, January 2nd is a critical one and whether Speaker Pelosi and Majority Leader Schumer can keep their troops there almost night and day to be able to head off some of the worst things, including, we hope, two years of appropriations for Ukraine and uh, for a number of other priorities. But they've also got to get a fix to the debt ceiling, or we could have a global catastrophe that flows from an American default. Beyond that, keep in mind that the investigations are not just going to be about Hunter Biden. There will be Afghanistan that will be basically Libya multiplied by 10. They will try to keep Tony Blinken and every other foreign policy advisor to the president tied down with hearings, with subpoenas, with their investigations. They're going to muck up a lot of what Biden would want to do on foreign policy, just make it more difficult for him. And they'll use appropriations to try and cut off funding for the Justice Department, uh, cutting back for the State Department in diplomacy and in other ways as well. It's going to be a very difficult time. And there's another thing to keep in mind. These radicals are going to try and do a fifth column foreign policy of their own. I can imagine them building not just ties with Bibi Netanyahu, but with the crazy right that will be a part of his government Some of them are going to go abroad and try to undercut what Biden is doing in foreign policy. So the headaches are going to be multiplied because we're not just talking about a typical divided government situation, which can be plenty filled with headaches, but something where for the first time we have a majority of the majority that is radical and a leader in Kevin McCarthy, who even if he wanted to curtail them, simply doesn't have what it takes to do so.
1: You know, Rosa, I feel bad because usually you hold the thorny crown of entropy. You are the most pessimistic voice here. And every time, you know, I think we've hit rock bottom, norm goes lower. And and I feel that he's he's stealing, he's stealing your stealing my up. gloom. Yeah, he's stealing my
4: I'm, apocalypse.
1: I'm gonna give you an opportunity because it seems yeah, my money's on Rosa. And I think she can beat him out here. Well, okay. And I'm gonna give her, <laughs> I'm gonna tee it up here. Rosa, yesterday, the former president of the United States said on November 15th, we're going to get a big announcement and uh, it's going to be a really exciting announcement. And he's going to
4: announce, wait, 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 he's going to announce that he's retiring from public life? No, no, no you know oh. who's going
1: to retire from public life because she almost said it last night in an interview?
4: Yes, the I think the yeah.
1: strongest Democrat. And that's Nancy Pelosi. So you're going to have Democrats minus Pelosi. You're going to have Trump running. What message is all that going to send to the world? And can you riff on that to top norms bloom?
4: (laughs) Yes, I can. I mean, I, I don't think that I think I've already said, you know, what I think the world already thinks and is going to continue to think unless unless there's some miracle today and the Democrats stay in power and, you know, Biden or someone sane wins the presidency in 2024 we're going to continue to get a great deal of of global mistrust and skepticism. But I'm going to, you know, one-up you all on doomsday uh, planning here by saying, I actually do fear that if the Republicans take over both the House and the Senate, I am very worried that we will sort of be past the tipping point when it comes to the future of American democracy. That what we have seen in the last couple of years has been a, a very concerted GOP effort from the, from the furthest right most extremist qAnon linked wing of the GOP election denying to target local and state level election officials to essentially suborn the process and i think that if they're not able to take both houses there's still a you know decent chance that over the next few years we can begin to restore some of those systems i still i still think Stunningly enough that that the Democratic Party writ large has not quite grasped how desperate and important this is. But I think that if they take both the House and the Senate, there is a pretty substantial chance that they rig the system in a way that if it is not permanent, is you know generational to undo, at least at, at a minimum. So goodbye, democracy. Hello, crazy QAnon style authoritarianism. I am not looking forward to it.
1: There you go. So, Ed, first of all, I apologize for having Norm and Rosa on at the same time. (laughs)
4: Clearly. clearly, clearly And we're going to give out the number for the suicide hotline at the end of this episode. And I I know, and I'm just
1: looking at your face, Ed, you're thinking, do I have enough whiskey in the house? How am I going to get through these next two years? What is your reaction to what you've just heard?
2: Well, that John McCain quote, it's always darkest before it goes pitch black. You know, well, when Norm and Rosa go low, I guess I also go low.
1: <laughs> the world it, does, be- it does give David the chance to be Little Mary Sunshine at the end here. So go ahead. It does. Which is, of it course, does. my reputation. Right.
0: <laughs> Put it this way, Ed. If we, if we have the nuclear calamity we were discussing two weeks ago, you don't have to worry about any of this.
2: Uh, there was something, um, and I forget the exact Keynes quote, but it's, the inevitable never happens, the unexpected usually does. And you know, if I were to go high here, I, I would um, expect, or at least hope for, positive shocks. We, we've had our share of ne- negative shocks, and the term "polycrisis," you know has entered um, day-to-day parlance remarkably rapidly in, in the last few weeks. And polycrisis is essentially a posh word for pants on fire about uh, every single global crisis. Together, each being an individual fire merging into one great conflagration, like, you know, Hamburg in July 1944 or whatever, a firestorm. And those shocks have been variously accelerating effects of climate change, accelerating backsliding of democracy, the um, pandemic, of course, the fact that we're not planning for the next pandemic, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China's shift sharply to the Leninist nationalist right under Xi Jinping. I mean, all of these things can give you a polycrisis sense. But there is such a thing as positive shock, too. And I think that the capacity for Republicans to overreach in the House and turn this into a madhouse show that backfires on them is non trivial, a non trivial hope that I have, it's, I think, a very likely thing, overreach in the House, which will set up whoever the Democratic nominee is, whether that's Biden or somebody else, a run against Trump. Um, The fact that Trump's floor is very low is extreme Is very high is very depressing, but his ceilings low, you know, he has never won a majority notwithstanding what Norman Rosa have just said about who's going to be elected and the secretaries of state and the governors and the rigging, and the fact that there are now 15 Marjorie Taylor Greens in the House, not, not three or four of them, all of those points notwithstanding, the system buckling in 2024, I still think is not the probability. We should act as though it, it is the likeliest outcome, but I'm not sure it actually is. So that, you know, in the context of what Norman and Rosa have both very correctly been saying would count as a positive shock.
1: You know, we have Norm and Rosa laying it out. Then I turn to Ed and I say to Ed, how do you respond to this? He says, I'm going to go high. And then what he says is, the way I'm going high is this. The Republicans are going to be so awful that they may not get reelected in 2024. That's his positive shock, is that the next two years will be so terrible that even the American people will get sick of this insanity.
0: This from a man from a country where the Prime Minister just lasted about 20 minutes.
2: <laughs> she lasted four Scaramucci's, to be precise. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. That sounds about right. I wonder does scaramucci translate into the British English? That's the, 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 the question How do you translate that it into metric? No. No. At the risk of, of um reinforcing a point Ed made. George W. Bush went through a, a really big backlash midterm election and got reelected. Same thing happened to Barack Obama. So, what Ed's describing is not necessarily unusual. And my guess is, and we could be, this could turn out to be completely wrong by the time we see the results. Is that the kind of reversal you you know may well see in the next couple of days may well be just within the norm of what we see in midterms? Might be a blowout, but the polls seem to suggest it. You know, if, and I, I I take our friend Mo warnings here that you can trust polls less than ever, but they do suggest that it's you know within the range of what we've seen before. I think the big question is less one of can America survive with divided government or can we put up with the continuing divisions that's going to come from having people who are election deniers in position to run future elections and all that. I think part of the problem is what's the opportunity cost here for a moment where global leadership and leadership on democracy are needed more than ever around the world. And the US may not be in a position to step up to go do it. You know, uh, Biden has not been completely wrong when he has said that this is a contest between democracy and autocracy. He has at moments run into the gray zone, Saudi Arabia being a really good example, where you discover he discovered that he can't fist bump with authoritarians and pretend that you're still doing this uh, for democracy. But I do think that we're in a position here now where he's going to be focusing on the rest of the world and the rest of the world is going to be saying, how long do we trust the Americans and what's my hedge, as we were discussing before. That's going to be a pretty uncomfortable place for the United States to sit for a couple of years.
1: No doubt that is true. Some people will listen to this on election night as they're waiting for results, many of which may not come for two or three or four days or a week, may be contested. Who knows could all come down to a Georgia election? The Senate could come down to a Georgia election which could go to a runoff, which would be in December, so we may not have that issue resolved for almost a month. But I would like to ask each of you, and can be a thirty second answer what is going to be a telling race that you're looking at, just one particular outcome that you're looking at tonight or over the next couple of days that you think people in the audience ought to look at because it's significant in some way, Norm.
3: If I were to pick one in terms of Washington, it would be Catherine Cortez Masto's Senate seat in Nevada. It's the most vulnerable Democratic seat if she holds on. That And we may not know that for a while. It's more likely the Democrats will eke out their majority in the Senate. I'd also just keep an eye on Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee for governor in Arizona, who is an extraordinarily dangerous character. And if she wins, we've got a big problem in 2024.
4: Well, I'll throw in Georgia. I mean, I, I don't think we're being terribly surprising to anybody here. But if uh, if Herschel Walker can get elected, then you know, apparently, a rock can get elected. It would be pretty depressing uh, when you have you know the the comparison between these two men could not be more clear. So I think that's a, that is another bellwether. If the if the citizens of Georgia are just just hunky dory with Herschel Walker being there, being there to represent them in Washington D.C. Then, you know, I don't know what to say.
2: I'll mention a couple. Um, Abigail Spanberger, you know, I think would be the first of the night to indicate where it's going. Her district in Virginia, you know, as a centrist Democrat in um, a district won by Biden quite clearly. If she loses, then it's going to be an extremely bad night. Um, a Wisconsin gubernatorial election is really important. Tony Evers, the sitting governor has run a decent campaign, but Tim Michaels, or Michelle's, I never quite know how to pronounce him, his Republican opponent, uh, notoriously said uh, last week that if he wins, then Republicans will never lose an election again in Wisconsin. And we know what that means. They'll have a supermajority. And We know in the context of everything we've been discussing what that means.
1: Yeah, I'd take that in conjunction with Norm's comment about Kerry Lake. If you have Arizona and Wisconsin you know, governors. That's a problem. David?
0: So I was going to name Abigail Spanberger as well, because that was a really critical
1: Virginia uh, seat. And another... Because you guys guys are foreign policy geeks, and she's a foreign policy geek. And so she's one of the few people in the Congress who follow closely.
0: Right. And so then we'll name another foreign policy geek, David, which will be Alyssa Slotkin, another former CIA officer, as uh, Abigail Spanberger was, in Michigan. She's a really interesting case. She won by 51% in a district that has since had its lines redrawn. And um, so the question is, can she survive uh, as well in Michigan? I think we'll know those two fairly early, I suspect. And if we do know those two fairly early, and if both of them have lost it tells you where the sort of middle-of-the-road Democrats were as they got run over or not.
1: I'm just to throw in the state of New York. If Governor Hockel loses to Lee Zeldin, I'm moving out of New York. So it happens, I'm planning to move out of New York anyway. But I'm moving out of New York because the Republicans could pick up the five seats they need in the House in New York elections alone, congressional elections, if he does particularly well, and that's another early state to watch.
2: David, if if uh, if Huckle loses to Zeldin, will you stop using Estee Lauder products?
1: Well, look at my face. I've already stopped.
2: No, no. I think your your cosmetics are good. Thank you. <laughs>
1: thank th- th- Thank you for that. I. I think my my cosmetician is Zoom Filter Inc. <laughs> uh, no, it's not true. I've never used a Zoom filter. I've never smeared Vaseline on the lens like Carrie Lake does for every shot she's in. Anyway, well, this is an interesting day. We are going to cover this this week, as only we can with the expanded coverage we've got now with all the podcasts. So we are going to do on Wednesday. Uh, Simon Rosenberg and Tara McGowan and I will do the usual Thursday podcast with a deep dive. Norman Kavita will do something on Thursday that's a deep dive into this. If something big happens, we'll do something in addition to that. I would also point your attention to, in the feed, you'll see uh, in this mini-series we're doing around my book, American Resistance, this week's uh, guest, this in- week's interview is with Ambassador Bill Taylor, and it's a great interview. And next week's is with Fiona Hill, also a great interview. So keep watching for those because the world does keep spinning around its axis, whether we have an election or not. And these people have interesting things to say. If you haven't voted, vote. If you did vote and you're listening to this while watching election returns, relax, do whatever relaxes you, possibly acupressure, possibly having an adult beverage, possibly turning off the TV because you're not going to know the full results for several days. But we'll we'll, uh, we'll follow this all closely. And thank you very much, everybody. Bye-bye.